Welcome to Takeaways, Life Lessons Learned. I'm your host, Hayam Mizrahi, recording from MDL Group. Recognized market leaders in commercial real estate brokerage and property management in Las Vegas, Nevada. Join me as I explore my takeaways from the people who have influenced me the most. Let's get started. Bruce Breyer. Bruce Breyer is my guest today. Bruce is rounding out his 43rd year in business as, get this, an organizational consultant. He's been a resource speaker for Vistage since 1985. He's presented over 1,000 times on two topics. The first is titled The Organized Executive, and the second is called The Goal-Setting Executive. I'm curious kind of what is the difference. But for any math buffs out there, 1,000 times to Vistage groups equals about 15,000 to 20,000 executives and senior staff that you've given your presentations to in your career. And that doesn't count other speaking engagements, which I imagine you've had outside of Vistage. Is that true? Many. Many. Maybe we'll hear a story or two about that. Bruce is based in La Jolla, California. We have at least two things in common that we can talk about. One is we both enjoy a an excellent slice of pizza. And the second is that we are borderline obsessed with the Capistrami from Capriotis. So thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's, it's really my pleasure. So that was my intro, but spend a few minutes in your own words. Tell us who you are. Tell us what you do. The title organizational consultant was not the original uh, thing that I decided to call myself. Uh, back in 1978, when I started my business, I uh, called myself a management consultant. <clears throat> Didn't know any better. But because my work has had such an organizational focus and base, uh, eventually, and I don't remember exactly when, I decided that an organizational consultant title sounded better. Uh, so I am an organizational consultant who works with busy people mostly, which includes everybody who's employed, I would imagine, mostly in leadership and management positions to help them become more productive, more effective, and more efficient through organization and everything that they do. <clears throat> and those those three words are, are, are very different, although they're oftentimes used interchangeably. Uh, productive is about the quantity of things that a person gets done, it's production. Effective is about the priorities people get done. And efficiency is about the quality of accomplishing priorities, if that makes any sense. So the, the business world especially evolved, uh, I'd say at least 20 years ago, where the focus was so much more on quantity, how many things that I get done, how busy I am. And prioritization seemed to pretty much die in, in my opinion, about 20 years ago, maybe more even. What do you mean by prioritization died? Well, if you have a, a lot of things you want to do and you start at the top and work your way down and at the conclusion of the day, you, you, you 
did get quite a number of things, you can get the feeling that you got not only a lot of things done, but you had a very good day when, in fact, maybe the most important things were not accomplished. So prioritization is taking any list, for example, and putting it in some order. And that's where it gets a little complex because the classic definition of prioritization is putting things in order of importance, yet we're in a world that mostly puts things in order of either urgency or sequence. I'm not sure if it matters in the long term, but to start the day with a list and working from the top and heading down is one of the most inefficient ways to work. Yet, I would dare say the majority of people work that way. So we'll get into more of this, and this is, this is the kind of thing that I love. It's, as you're talking about that, I can't help but get an image of someone trying to improve their golf game in my mind and how a coach would approach someone trying to improve their golf game is they would slow everything down into basic parts. First, you approach the ball. How are you approaching the ball? How are you gripping the club? How are you standing? Where's your balance? Which, which part of your body do you move first in the backstroke and all that? And kind of like people start their day just making a list and working their way down without slowing it down to the approach, to the grip. We spend, a lot of people that I know spend time and effort in their golf swing, but not necessarily in their workday. But we'll, we'll get into much more of that. It's an interesting analogy, the game of golf. I, I'm up front. I'm not a, a good golfer at all. One of the only sports I've not been somewhat good at in my life. If you look at when to prepare for the golf shot, the last place is over the ball. So my theory is that as you're in the golf cart riding up to the next hole, that's when you prepare the club selection. That's when you prepare the visual, the stance, the type of swing, and, and so forth. So what's, what's the analogy? Well, um, before the workday starts, you want to be, you want to prepare the day. Before you get to the tee, you prepare the golf shot. And then it's a matter of standing over the ball and executing. That's when the thinking should stop, mm -hmm. right? Because I think a good golf coach would tell you that the thing that gets you in your way of being good at golf is in your head. Mostly, you got to stop thinking. And and that's a really good comparison to being productive, effective, and efficient before the day formally starts, plan it out. Yet, statistically, less than 5% of leaders and managers formally do that. And that's part of what has sustained me for so many years because nobody argues with what I just <laughs> mentioned to you. Nobody disagrees. Mm -hmm. Yet, not enough people do it. But they're all very productive. They all get a lot of things done. And there's the... You know, the problem. So we'll get into more of this, and I want to, for, for the moment, just stick with you a little bit more so we understand who, who is Bruce. I mentioned you're from La Jolla. You're, you're headquartered in La Jolla. Do you have a family? I do. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, I'm married. I've uh, been married almost 30 years now. Second marriage. I married my college sweetheart too early in life, and probably too immature to make that work, uh, unfortunately. I have two children, uh, 
both, uh, one is in his early 40s now, one in her late 30s. They both live in Arizona. They went to Arizona State uh, about three years apart and stayed there. My son is a lawyer. My daughter is a kindergarten teacher. I have now four grandchildren, um, three boys and one girl. All all very organized, I imagine. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I I promised never to be my wife's or my children's organizational consultant. It's very wise. Very wise. Uh, so although they do well, but I never get involved in techniques or tools family-wise. I made that decision a very long time ago. We have a rule in our house where if I'm asked to make the salad... My wife can't tell me how she wants the tomatoes cut. I make the salad and vice versa. Does she follow those rules? Eh, I follow them. She, <laughs> she has uh, as much grace as she wants with that. So thinking back in 43 years of doing this, which doing anything for that amount of time is just remarkable in and of itself. But is there a story or two that jump out that you'd like to share that can illuminate kind of more how you work, the work you do, or just anything that, you remember that would be interesting. If I go back to the beginning, I'm from New York City, born and raised. And when I graduated from high school, I went to a small school in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania, of all places, on a basketball scholarship. And I played basketball there for a few years before I broke my leg, unfortunately, and gave it up. When I graduated, I was very um, unclear of what I wanted to do and where I wanted to live. Uh, there were no phys ed majors when I went to college, so all of the jocks, if you will, were business majors. So I, I graduated with a business degree. Uh, so my wife got a job, at the, my wife at the time got a job as a teacher in Mystic, Connecticut, and I just looked for a job in Connecticut and we moved there. I became a sales representative for the Zenith Radio Corporation, which is no longer in business, but if you've ever heard of Zenith, color and TV and things like that, uh, I sold to mom and pop stores covering a territory in half the state of Connecticut. I hated that job. I absolutely hated it. Um, making twelve to $13,000 a year in the early 1970s and I just, and I, I grew to be really uh, abhorred, I really hated winter as well. So the combination of both of those caused me to actually become depressed in the early 1970s. To the extent that in 1976 I'd had enough and I decided to resign after five years of working in this company and didn't have another job left lined up. I was unemployed and took most of 1977 off to figure out what the heck I wanted to do and, and live. During that summer, I had no children at the time. Uh, my wife and my dog, uh, we, I rented a camper van and went on a search for paradise. It was a very organized trip, <laughs> I, might, I might tell you. I still have the chart. I was looking for a place to start over, and 
began in the northeast corner of, of the United States in Connecticut, went down to Florida, uh, all the way across the southern part of the country, ended up in Southern California, then Los Angeles and Central California, Northern California, and went back. So it circled the United States. The three uh, final candidates were uh, Tampa, the Clearwater, Tampa area, Boulder, Colorado, and San Diego, California. So when we got back to Connecticut, I'd looked at my chart, which had all of the characteristics of paradise, and San Diego won. During that time, though, I found a company that had produced materials on cassette tape and workbooks that you could invest in as a franchise or a distributorship and start your own business helping other people to get into very specific and incredible goal-setting and organizational techniques. It was my first glimpse at strategic planning. So I borrowed $5,000 from my uncle to put a down payment in it. So the combination of both of those ended up where in late fall of 1977, after I returned from the trip, decided to move to San Diego without knowing a soul and start up my consulting business using these materials. Uh, found an apartment after arriving in San Diego, converted one of the rooms to a, an office, went to a store that was very much like the Home Depot, bought a door without the hole in it, stained it, bought a desk chair, a lamp, had a telephone installed, and BHB Consulting Services was started officially on January 1st of 1978. By March of 1979, I was almost broke <laughs> and once again feeling depressed because it wasn't working. I actually went to an employment agency and was offered a job as what used to be called a rack jobber, which is a sales rep uh, who goes, on, goes to call on convenience stores like 7-Elevens and grocery stores and rack, stocks their racks with various products. The, the kicker was I would have to sell cigarettes, and I've never smoked cigarettes. It killed my father. It killed my sister. So it gave me a company car and $20,000, and I thought, hmm, that's so appealing, but I can't do it. And about two weeks later, uh, a farmer's insurance agent gave me a chance. I cold called him, and he gave me a chance to work with him. And he referred me to another farmer's insurance agent. To work with him as a consultant. Okay. Putting him through my Got program. It. Got it. So I worked with him, and he liked it. And he referred me to another farmer's insurance agent who was a very prominent person in his community, and he really liked it. He referred me to a local newspaper in Oceanside, California, and the publisher of that newspaper referred me to close to 200 people over the next three years in my business. Wow. So I went from almost taking a job selling cigarettes <laughs> to it finally clicking in, and that was in uh, probably close to 1980 when it, when it finally started. Uh, the most significant thing that happened, though, occurred in January of 1985. 
I was working with a car dealership in San Diego, and two partners were my clients, and I, would, I worked with them on how to organize better. Back then, um, I would teach people how to use the Daytimer time management system, a wonderful tool. I had a relationship with the Daytimer Corporation where they would send me samples as many as I wanted, I would... Describe what a daytimer is. A daytimer is a, a calendar book, essentially, a small one, that has two pages per day that you fill out to plan your day. So it had a template, essentially, in writing. It's way before computers of things to do, people to see, places to go, people to call, things to discuss, things to delegate. So I would teach people how to plan their day by filling out the daytimer and coming up with a prioritized list before the day started. I should tell you that I've always been a very organized person. I was an organized kid. <laughs> uh, I used to love to organize things in my room. So my father was pretty compulsive. So it was either years of therapy or start a business, I guess. At any rate, I, I was teaching these two partners about the daytimer, and they just loved the system. And they used it every day. And one day in January, this is after about three months of working with them, one of them said to me, you know, you ought to be a tech speaker. Now, Vistage, as you referred to, used to be called or known as TEC, T-E-C, which is an acronym for the Executive Committee, T-E-C. They rebranded. Uh, if you well, ask Frank Martin, who's been a guest on this podcast, who you know, it's still TEC. <laughs> well, that's like um, many still, people still call Costco the price club. Same type of thing. Yeah. It would always be TEC. So he says to me, you ought to be a tech speaker. So I naturally said or asked, What's tech? And they told me what it, what it was about. And perhaps coincidentally, the tech office was in San Diego. That's where they're headquartered. Uh, so I called them up on their referral. A lady by the name of Jackie High, H-E-Y-E, uh, interviewed me, told me point blank, if you do become a speaker, it is totally inappropriate to market yourself on any level in any group presentations. And I said, no problem. I follow instructions. So she gave me a chance to, be, to do a speaking engagement in Houston, Texas, and then in San Diego. Back then, tech members would evaluate the speakers with a handout at the end where they had a series of facial expressions, where they had to circle the face that best described how they felt about your presentation. And A plus was, all, was a very happy face, and F was a very deep frown. So these first two presentations, I got all these happy faces, and they kept asking me back and asking me back, and as the saying goes, the rest is history, all because of that question or that statement, you ought to be a tech speaker. So, long story short, there is absolutely no way I would be sitting here today, 43 years later, without becoming a tech speaker and then subsequently Visage speaker. 
because of the unsolicited amount of business that has come my way. I'm almost embarrassed to say I've done zero marketing since 1985. All of my work has come to me where arguably 80 to 85% have been vistage rooted. It's been a blessing. It's, I, can't, I can't speak enough about how appreciative I, I've been of that opportunity. And never once did I market myself in those, 11, uh, those almost 1,100 <coughs> presentations. Uh, so it's been a wonderful ride. I recently retired from Vistage after 36 years of being a speaker. Uh, it was a little bit bittersweet. But the demographics were changing so much, and it, it, it was time for me to slow down my travel at, at this stage of my life. And um, with the type of climate we're in now, that slowed down even more. But <clears throat> that's, that's kind of the evolution of the startup, meeting that farmer's insurance agent, meeting that newspaper publisher, and those car the car dealership partners who said you ought to be a speaker, those were the three significant turning points that d helped me develop a career uh, for so many years, and I frankly never thought it would last this long. You may have already answered this question, but I ask everybody this question, um, and you certainly answered it, I think, in a business context, but you know, this show is called Takeaways, and it's about the takeaways that I've learned from people who have influenced me, as you've been one of those people. What has been the single most influential thing or event in your life that has shaped you the most? Well, I've already shared with you the professional side. I believe we make decisions in life without knowing their long-term effect. Turning points. When I was about to go to high school, a new high school was built in my neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York. I was supposed to go to a very popular high school, and I was looking forward to going there and playing basketball for this wonderful school. And this new high school was built, and I was... I went to, I graduated junior high school in ninth grade, so I went into this high school in 10th grade. And when the high school started, there were just ninth and 10th graders. I was a senior for three years in this high school. And they had a basketball team. And I decided not to play for the high school. Probably not a, a nice decision. And I played for a community center instead. And the community center that I played for not only played other community centers in New York City, but also had some out-of-town uh, games. And one of the uh, out-of-town games was in Pennsylvania, in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And I don't exactly remember what happened, but somebody saw me play and referred my coach to somebody in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, a community center. 
And that's how I was approached to get a scholarship to Wilkes College, now Wilkes University, to play basketball there. The reason I say that's the turning point, because if I would have went to that other school, I probably would still be in New York City working in the city in some executive job. Uh, maybe not, but that decision not to play for that high school was a ripple effect because that's where I met my first wife. We ended up in Connecticut and then took the tour to San Diego, and you could see mm -hmm. uh, th those dominoes just fell right into place. That was, that was probably the most significant turning point. There was one other that, if I could take a moment, my father was a baker <clears throat> in New York. And during the summer, I would work in the bakery. And uh, the bakery specialized in making bagels. And there's a baker and a kettleman, it's called. I was the kettleman. And the way you make bagels was you take the circled doughs. It was made out of dough. And you put it in this boiling water. You mix it around, you scoop it out, put it on this tray, and then with your fingers you take the now boiled circled dough bagels and you put them on boards, you put them in the oven, they go around once or twice, and they come out the bagels we know. Well, there's a, there's a hot, boiling hot kettle, and then there's next to it a tray with cold water because it, they're hot. So the idea is to put your hands in the cold water so you could touch the hot bagels that just came out of the kettle. And one day I got confused and put my fingers in the boiling water. Ouch. Now, my mother dreamt of me taking over my father's bakery. That was her dream in life. At that moment, when I put my hands in that kettle, I knew I was not going to do that. <laughs> that was not my <laughs> life's aspiration. <laughs> so that was the other turning point that caused me to shift gears and take a different path. I'm curious about your decision not to go to the popular high school and to go to the other. Was that your decision, no. or how much influence did your parents have in that? Zero. It was where I lived. Um, it's about zoning. Um, you know, you, in New York City, you go to the school that is zoned out for your neighborhood. Um, so if you could picture, here we are in your office. Uh, this high school was in Summerlin, mm -hmm. and this new high school maybe was in the southwest part of, of Las Vegas that was just built. So instead of now a uh, 25-minute bus ride or car to Summerlin, now I've got a five-minute ride to the new high school. So that's what it was. You had to go to the high school. You had no choice. And what about the decision to play for the high school or play for the community center? Was now, that your decision? That was my decision with some influencing by uh, the athletic director of the community center who really wanted me to play for the community center. It was a very difficult time. I, I, I was seven, 17 years old maybe 16 years old, I, I forget. And I never, I, up until that point, I didn't have a major decision ever that I had to make in my life. That was probably the first major decision. Should I play for the high school or tell them I'm not going to play? And I remember really grappling with that, 
In fact, I'll date myself. There was a, I was, I was lying in my bed in Brooklyn listening to the radio, and I'm a big fan of music and lyrics. And a song by a group called The Lovin' Spoonfill came on the radio as I'm lying there staring at the ceiling, what should I do? And the song's title is, Did You Ever Have to Make Up Your Mind? <laughs> 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 I never forgot that. And uh, so the next morning I woke up and decided I'm not going to play for that high school. They were really ticked at me, too. The athletic director at the high school didn't talk to me all three years I was there. He, and he used to... Uh, berate me and publicly. It, it's very, uh, uh, he was abusive almost to me. Wow. Yeah. You just reminded me of that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> we'll see what else comes out of this session for you. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting you said turning points and how a decision can have a ripple in this case for the rest of your life. And I've become aware in the last, I don't know, maybe a year or so that of that, that how a decision can have a three-year effect. If I say yes right now or no right now, it's I'm saying some I'm I'm saying yes or no to something for the next three years, five years. My favorite example of that is when someone asks you to serve on a board or a committee. Committee is probably a better example. Hey, you know what? You seem great and wonderful. Let's have you join this committee. And you join a committee and you're passionate about it and you do a good job. And then somebody in the organization recognizes that and says, you should come join the board. And you don't think about it very much and say, absolutely. Because mostly I feel, I'll speak about myself, wow, I've been asked to serve in this position of stature. And a person I admire and respect asked me to do this and I can't say no to them. And I say yes. And then you're on this board and then they ask you to be the treasurer. And treasurer is typically the pathway to being the president or the chairperson of this committee. And you go from treasurer to maybe secretary to president-elect, and then president-elect in and of itself is a three-year yes because you serve a year for president-elect and then a year for president and then a year as past president. And as I am sitting here telling you this now, I've become much more aware of these decisions, and obviously the work that we've done together has helped with that too. What are my priorities? One of the first things I learned when I became a consultant and started my business was, and by the way, I've not been a good, inno I've never been a strong or a good innovator of things. I've been an excellent applier of other people's concepts, theories, and techniques, always giving them credit to the extent that I could remember. And one, one person taught me something profound early on. He said, if at any time you're not making the progress you would like and you know you're capable of making it, it's simply because your goals are not clearly defined. Say that again. If at any time in your life you are not making the progress you would like and you know you're capable of making, it is simply because your goals are not clearly defined. And just like you did, it took me a while to digest that and figure out what the heck it meant. Paul J. Meyer was his name, and what, what it means is that if your goals are not clearly defined, you can make decisions that are much more emotional, egotistical, to an extreme narcissistic, without giving 
consideration to the effect it will have on what you want to do. Therefore, th those types of decisions and turning points ideally are not made in 24 hours emotionally. They're made in relationship to how they will or will not affect what you want to accomplish. Of course, it's 16 years old, and live, you know, New York City, although it's changed a lot, survival is probably the, the goal, <laughs> getting through and getting by, because it's such a crazy place, or it was then. Um, and when you talk about prioritization, and you talk about a plan, essentially every day, the question is essentially, what will make this a successful day? What are my top one, two, or three goals I want to accomplish? So you, you could look at it in terms of your life, life decisions, board decisions. If I join this board, what will it do to my business? Do I have the time? As opposed to being so enamored because of being asked. Wow, that's special. Uh, and of course, the work day. And the value of goal setting on a daily basis is its impact on the number one cause of an unproductive, ineffective, and inefficient day. And that cause is simply called unnecessary interruptions. Interruptions. Because if you don't have a plan, if your goals are not clearly defined for the day, then anything that comes up, anybody who walks to your door, any email that pops up, any text on your phone, any phone call, suddenly takes on the priority of the moment. But in relationship to your goals, that may not be the best thing to do. So what, what's striking me about this conversation is the courage to say no. And just like you had the courage to say no to the bully basketball coach who berated you and was abusive for three years after that was the consequence of saying no but was the right decision there's the i feel bad about saying no someone walks in my office says hey i'd like one of your lines got a minute we'll talk about that got a minute which is not ever a minute but it's having that discipline and really the courage to saying no would you like to serve on the on the board you would be a great board chair in three years after you go through the treasure routine and all that Yes, I would like to. I, I, in fact, I would love to. I have to say no. I have to say no because I have other priorities. And that's a hard thing to do. It is. And in the last moment, the way you said it is actually the approach. If you think, if you think about it, nobody likes to say the word no. And I dare say, my opinion is nobody really likes to hear the word no. Therefore, logic tells me don't use the word. You have to develop. <laughs> it's you that simple. You can't say no. <laughs> uh, you have to develop a different way of saying it, and you you just did. So one of the coaching techniques is, I'd love to do that. I really would, and I appreciate your asking. However, as opposed to but, however, I really cannot do that at the present time because I have so many other priorities that I'm committed to, and I probably wouldn't do as good a job as I would like and you would like, so thank you. And, you know, it's a little bit wordy. Notice I didn't say the word no in anything mm -hmm. just now. Uh, and, and so many people are not doing that face-to-face -face anymore. We're doing it by email 
which makes it a lot, a little bit easier because you have the time to compose it. Um, but that's the idea. Another thing that I learned a long time ago that always stuck with me, and I don't recall the author on this, so I apologize. It was so profound. It says, trying to be all things to all people is a formula for mediocrity. And when I say that in seminars, I always ask at that point, how many of you have a goal to be mediocre in what you do? And of course, <laughs> everybody laughs or not a hand goes up. The point is, though, that if you're spreading yourself too thin without clearly defined goals and without a plan for the day, you can end up with an average life, an average career, average performance, and then you wonder what happened. And then people who are working for other people think, well, this isn't working. I'll get a job somewhere else. And they run into the same things. When it's such a simple formula, and it's characterized in one of the classic time management concepts. It says plan your work and work your plan. Yet less than 5% formally plan their work. And it's gotten worse since email came up. You know, the, the derailment and the hijacking, those are the buzzwords that email causes first thing in the morning where the clock doesn't stop, causes so many people to find themselves suddenly at 10.30 in the morning and they haven't gotten anything done that they thought they were going to get done. Where does the day go? Well, it goes, it's a runaway train because of interruptions. There's a rule that m many people know. It's called the Pareto Rule, P-A-R-E-T-O, or Pareto Principle, commonly called the 80-20 Rule. And applied to interruptions, which are internal, the customer or the client is never an interruption. I want to make that quite clear. Internally, 80%, roughly, of all interruptions that take place in the course of a workday did not, do not need, have to happen at the point that they are caused. But because we have in the workplace something that I call unintentional selfishness, borderline narcissism, which means I need it, stop what you're doing to take care of me, and because you are accommodating, when I ask you to have a minute, you're going to say sure, and 80% of the time you do that or I interrupt you, it shouldn't have happened, I've taken you away from your work, and you'll have a productive day, but you won't have an effective day. And they're, they're, now we're back to those definitions of productive, effective, and efficient. There's so much in what you just said and so many different directions we can go, but as you were talking, you reminded me of something, so nobody listening can see what I did, but I'll explain it. I turned around and I frantically looked for something, and I found it. It's a folder that says Bruce Breyer. And in the folder in the very back is the first page of notes that I ever took when I first met you. Or I don't think we met unless it was just a quick hello. But you were a Vistage speaker at a Vistage group that I was not in, actually. I was invited as a guest to hear you speak. Mm -hmm. The date is October 23rd, 2013, mm -hmm. seven years ago. And I have, you could see here, a full page and... Almost a full second page of notes and a little handout that you gave out that day. Well, on the top, it says organizational recommendations, and there are 10 in here, and maybe we'll unpack that. But what caused me to reach back and grab this thing is because one of my notes, I made eight notes on the side of, of the page. Number seven, mediocrity is unacceptable. Mm -hmm. Thrive or exit. Mm -hmm. 
Is that something you would say? Uh, that the thriving part is something uh, I humbly say I came up with. Uh, and the way I promote it or mention it in seminars is like this. I say, in my opinion, everybody who works for your organization should thrive or exit mediocrity is unacceptable. If you are in the management position or a CEO, one of your roles is to accelerate the inevitable with people and provide them the environment to thrive or accelerate their exit. I've just worked with so many companies and CEOs who tolerate mediocre performance. Um, and when the time comes for those people to finally leave, either on their own or through termination, I, I would say, if not 100%, close to 100%, the person who's in the CEO position, let's say, you ne always said, why did I wait so long? So the acceleration of the inevitable comes back to what we were talking about with regards to goals. I also invented a tool called a success description all over 30 years ago. I had an epiphany one morning that job descriptions were woefully inadequate personal management tools. I still believe that, by the way. They're necessities. They're typically not written well, not prioritized, and the frequency with which a job description is reviewed by any employee, facetiously I would tell you, is twice. Either the, the day they're hired or during the onboarding and the day there is a problem. It's a dead tool. So I thought there's gotta be a better way. So a success description, using the job description as a base, is a one-page business plan for the position that identifies the top priority goals of the position for the fiscal year in, co in connection with alignment with the company's goals, an organizational strategy to accomplish those goals and key metrics or indicators that that person has to track. And that's a way to create a thriving environment because if you're not making the progress, if that person's not making the progress they would like and you know they're capable you know, you would like and you know they're capable of making, maybe it's because their goals are not clearly defined. Job descriptions are not goals programs. So that's in alignment with the mediocrity, thrive or exit uh, concept. So there's two, possibly two types of people listening to this right now. There's the leader, CEO, manager, and there's the worker, the employee. Is this success description available for both? Meaning, is it only the duty of the leader and manager to create a success description or can just a worker be say I've give I've received everything from the company the job description the discussion about what I need to be doing and and all that I will create my own self my own success description in over 30 years wherever I brought the success description it has been cascaded down throughout companies and organizations with notable exceptions of positions um, in, in factories, in uh, shops, in uh, 
oftentimes in administrative positions, there are some positions that don't lend itself, but everybody in leadership and management supervisory positions would do well to have a one-page document like this that does not end up in a file that is used proactively and coming full circle. Your daily priorities ideally align with your success description, which ideally aligns with the company or the organization's goals for the fiscal year. And in that regard, we have total synchronicity in theory. And if that individual does not perform up to expectations, it's for other reasons than not having goals and strategies clearly defined. Sounds like a lot of work. It's actually quite <laughs> simple, but it does sound like a lot of work. The hard part is coming up with the goals. So I just reached back again and I grabbed something. It says it's a full focus planner. Do you know about this thing? I've not seen that one. I'm sure it's like many others I've seen. Plan your year, design your days, achieve your biggest goals. I'm looking to see if I wrote the date down when I bought this. And when I started writing it out, I think it was the about 20, it had to have been 2019 because my goal summary has a year end date of 2020. Okay. Maybe it was around then. But I started, I started doing this myself. I bought this planner. I think it was like 50 bucks. It wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> like a 7.99 thing at Target. It starts out annual goals. You go down to the goal details. You break out each goal with, with immense detail. You know what domain in your life is this goal? Is it, a, is it a physical goal, a marital goal, a financial goal, a spiritual goal? A lot of details here. Then there's it breaks it down into into the month. And then I think the week and then the day. So I, I got through by myself, page one, two, three, and four, and I stopped. And I remember specifically the feeling I had when I was doing this at my kitchen table. The hairs on the back of my neck started coming up. Uh -huh. I, I was starting, my skin was starting to feel this uncomfortable warmth around itself. And it was just, it was... I don't know. Maybe it was too much accountability. Maybe it was too hard to work through. It was just, I stopped. Well, Why is that? There are a few things associated with that story. And let me give you another example in my life. In 1982, well, I've had two mentors in my life, uh, two people that coached me through the first uh, 10 years of my consulting career. And in 1982, I met with one of them, and I was really struggling at that time. Um, again, this is before I became a tech speaker, and vintage speaker. Now, up, up until that point, I had what you had. I had a completely organized, full goals program in a three-ring binder. For yourself? For myself. And I sat down with my mentor, and I, I told him how I was struggling. And he said to me, I bet you haven't worked on your, in, on your binder, on your goals program in some time. Is that correct? And I looked at him, and I, I thought for a moment. I said, I probably haven't touched it in six months. And he said to me, those famous words, I think we found the problem. 
So that's first thing that you point out. Just spending fifty dollars does not do the trick for you. It's like joining a health club that's one hundred and fifty dollars a month and figuring you get in shape because you pay the fee every month, but you got to go. <laughs> <laughs> you got to go. Um, the other thing that I've noticed over the years is how people can invest in technology and software and hardware and books like you just showed me. And the luster wears off after a certain point. Or, as you point out, it suddenly raises the hair on the back of your neck. What you experience, in my opinion, <laughs> is a subconscious fear of commitment. You know, suddenly you're writing all of these things down, and fear of commitment is more prominent than we give, we give it uh, substance to. You know, the obvious fears are fear of failure and fear of success, but I think fear of commitment is right up there. And by the way, the only fear we're born with, innate fears, are fear of falling and fear of loud noises. Every other fear we have is learned, just as an aside. So when you, when you engage in something new, which is really a struggle in my work, because when I give seminars, when I coach people, when I work with companies, I bring something new. The buzzword of traction, though, the sustainability is the biggest struggle. Getting people to continue to do things once that luster wears off, once it's no longer new. Um, you know, I, you read this book. I read Good to Great, and then Good to Great ends up on the bookshelf. It was written in 2001, almost 20 years ago. Yet if you pulled out the book Good, Good to Great today, it's as contemporary as it was in 2001. Why should it sit on the bookshelf? Why should you get a new book? Well, that's the flavor of the month. I heard this. I heard that. I'm not down on those things. The commitment to sustain, the commitment to work the program once the excitement of it wears off is a self-discipline, self-motivation issue. Again, it's a struggle for me. And I think to some degree that the companies and organizations who have renewed my engagement with them over and over again don't do that so much for the techniques, but more for the reminder of the sustainability need and for the accountability that I'm coming to visit you today. Did you do your, mm -hmm. have you done your planning? Have you... Uh, kept up with your emails? Have you uh, delegated with clarity and all the other things that I do? So let's do that. I, I'm curious, under the theme of fear of commitment, which is an interesting observation that I, I want to peel back some more. But So I, I tried that by myself. I bought this planner. I did the three pages in it. Too much for me. Uh, you and I reconnected. This is clearly something that I want to do. It's been on my mind. I've tried other things intellectually. I, I, you know, I've read books. The Keller Williams guy, I forgot his, his first name. He wrote the book, The One Thing, and it's really about discipline and focus and all that. So I get it. I know about business planning and working your plan and all that, yet it's still, like I said earlier, it's a hard thing to do. But you and I reconnected. I, I asked you if you would work with me one-on-one. -on -one. 
I paid your retainer, which was more than 50 bucks. So I had the financial commitment in there. And now you've taken me through a process. And, and in the arc of what we've done so far, I'll kind of give the highlights and we can dig into them. We spent a, a good amount of time in an, in an assessment phase where you asked me a lot of questions. Is that accurate yes. so far? Yes. After that, you gave me back a customized curriculum based on the things that I said in that assessment phase. And I think there were maybe eight or ten things there. Then we went through a, a prioritization process. Of these eight to ten things, what are the top three that we need to focus on? You, you volleyed that back to me. We prioritized this curriculum. And then we started the work based on the, the priorities. And there were, there were tactics in there, but then there's, I don't want to say it's strategy. I don't know that that's the equivalent, but there were things like having a success description. One of the things we're working on now is developing a leadership philosophy statement. So there's, there's a macro and a micro. In the, hi, I'm what to success, what do you need to do to be successful at your role? And as I read these, these 10 things that we wrote down, mentally I get there. That's the macro in my mind. And then it's one of the things I shared with you. I'm frustrated that I live, I feel like I live in my inbox. I don't want to spend so much time in my inbox and emails. So then you gave me very tactical things to do on how to manage that. So that's sort of the arc of the work that we've started with and where, where we are now. Um, kind of tie those two together for me. What you described in my work is a design phase with any client engagement. So once we make reach agreement, before we get started, I need to know what your objectives are so I can formulate collaboratively with you that curriculum. And that curriculum is prioritized. And you could see, based on your words, there are a few steps involved in that. I've always believed in the ready, set, go, the ready, aim, fire approach to things. I'm very linear in that regard. Uh, the ready, fire, aim, or the ready, go, set is very inefficient, in my opinion. And do most people do that? I, I, or is it I more would, go? I would not. I, I feel like I would describe myself before working with you and how I started my day. I'd come in, I'd open my shades, go get the coffee, sit down, and i just go. There was no yeah. ready set. I, I won't disagree. I, I just don't like to say most because I don't know okay. most. I would tell you my experience, most of the people I've met probably <laughs> do that ready, go, set, or ready, fire, aim, because it's, it's more exciting, at least subconsciously more exciting. I would be the first to tell you that planning and proactively organizing yourself is very boring and tedious to many people. That's not the point, though. It's the benefit of it, not to mention the stress management benefit, the calmness of, the calmness of control, the feeling of control when you are proactively ready for the day or ready for a meeting or ready for a fiscal year or ready for a speaking engagement or ready for, you know, that word ready is preparation. But that's pretty boring to many people. That's a tough, a tough sell. Coming back to what you were pointing out, though, and you mentioned the book The One Thing, which is an excellent book. My approach is to do one 
thing at a time. So the curriculum puts it in priority order, and then you recall, we started with number one, the most important thing. And we spent a week or two on that, let's say, and then we went to number two while we continually followed up on number one. And we got, we're now at the point after several months where we're down to the last point on the curriculum. So one of the things we talked about before we started is I, had a, I have an intention for this episode with you. And I don't know if the Bruce Breyer magic will translate from the microphone to whoever's hearing this in an applicable way. But that's what I hope. So in that, there's a few things that you gave me, gifts, I would say, that you gave me that I want to share and we'll talk about that I hope anyone listening can actually grasp onto and apply. But one of the biggest gifts that you gave me that I've referenced back was you said we work on it for a week or two. I remember even in my notes from 2012, I wrote, give it four to six weeks before it becomes a habit. And one of the things you talked to me about is, Haim, we're going to do this stuff, and these are the phases that you are going to go through. Phase one, rejection. Phase two, resistance. Phase three, routine. Phase four, habit, provided that you stick with it and you get to that point. And it does take four to six weeks to change one behavior, come in the office, open the shades, get the coffee, sit down, start starting my emails, two, come to the office, open the shades, get the coffee, don't touch my computer, now I open a appointment that I set with myself called the morning startup. So Monday through Friday, it's right there about the time that I start my day. I open it and there's a checklist of things I need to go through before I touch my emails. However, getting from go, set, ready to ready, set, go was rejection, resistance, routine, and habit. And that was, I think, if not the most, one of the most important things you've shared with me. Another thing I learned early on were the six stages of habit formation. That's what you're referring to. Now, um, first thing to point out is there really isn't anything magical or mystical about this. So let's, let's be clear about it. Fine. <laughs> uh, secondly is that so much of success is behavioral. And... That tells us how important habits are to success. I learned early on a statistic, and I quite frankly don't know how it, the person came up with it, that as much as 95% of what you and I do, what people do every day is habitual, good or bad, virtually automatic, requires no conscious thought whatsoever, stimulus response, phone rings, you answer it, somebody's at your door, you say, what do you need? That type of thing. So there are two words that really are important to change a habit. So if you say, logically, I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want to get managed by my inbox. Well, that's not going to take 24 hours because you're used to it, even if it's a bad habit. So the two key words are patience and persistence. Now, those are not easy words, especially the patience part in today's world. So these six stages, uh, you paraphrase them a little bit. Let me give you them verbatim. And each of these stages is one week. So if anybody's listening to this and wants to develop a new habit, you have to look at the calendar when you start and go out six weeks, and that's the date when you can expect 
the change to feel comfortable if the repetition has been there. And that's the key word, repetition. That's how habits are formed or changed. The six stages are week one is called rejection. Even if you agree it's a good thing, mind, body, and spirit's going to say, uh-uh, that's not the way we've been doing things around here. <laughs> week two is resistance, not quite as harsh, but still you're resisting. The tendency, therefore, after two weeks is to do what? Quit. Yep, go back to how I was doing this it before. Ain't, this ain't working. You're a third of the way there, if you know the six stages. The third and fourth stages are partial and full acceptance. After three or four weeks, mind, body, and spirit are accepting the fact that something's changing here. But the fifth and sixth weeks are partial and full assimilation, where if you, if you really stay the course with the persistence, when you get to that point in the calendar, it almost feels like you always did it this way. Now, patience is not, it's a virtue, but it's not a, a practice, uh, especially with high achievers like you are. Uh, you want to go, 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 but that's very productive, not necessarily very effective. So under the title, Bruce Breyer, Organized Consultant, October 23rd, 2013, the first thing I have is give it 46 weeks to become comfortable. The second thing I wrote down was the workday bookends. And even back then, I took elements of that and incorporated it from then to now. And then it was retooled and refined in our work together over the last several months. So talk about what are the workday bookends. For years, I'd say 25 out of my 43 years, I taught people to plan their work days the night before. Before you go home every night, wrap up today and plan tomorrow. And then in the early 1990s, email suddenly appeared. America Online told us, you've got mail, and everybody was excited, and that excitement is no longer here. <laughs> uh, at any rate, it became almost futile to plan your day tomorrow when you, before you go home tonight because you come in the morning and there are emails that change the whole course of the day. So I came up instead with a new technique called the workday bookends where the recommendation is to allocate and schedule the first 15 to 30 minutes of your day, a technique called the morning startup, that's the getting ready, identifying the priorities that you're set to go. The last 15 to 30 minutes of your day is recommended to be allocated and scheduled, called the daily wrap-up. This is for closure. Worst way to end your day, in my opinion, is to drop the last thing you were working on and leave. Yet that's how so many people operate. Worst way you start your day is to get hijacked, derailed, and buried in emails. It, m many people do that. So putting these two bookends into the calendar, and scheduling is key. Uh, time management concept tells us clearly what gets scheduled gets done. It tells us, though, that if it's not in the calendar, it's not going to get done consistently. So the first thing I do, as I believe I did with you, is once we agreed what time you're going to do the bookends, let's get to the calendar and let's put them in there as a recurring weekday or workday event. And then it's the behavioral part is to not blow it off, not schedule anything over it, but satisfy this very important administrative component of your position. So if it's not time management, what is it? And why is it important to think of it differently? Um, 
there are a number of different words, but the simple contemporary phrase I would call it is workday management, managing your workday. You can't, you can't really manage time. You can spend it. You can give it away. But you can't store it. You can't hoard it. A visual aid I do oftentimes in seminars, if there's a clock in the room with a second hand, is I, I tell the audience, take a moment and stare at the clock with me and watch the second hand for 10 seconds. And after 10 seconds, I announce what you've just witnessed is time flying. <laughs> you cannot stop the clock. So you can't manage time. You can plan how you're going to spend your time. And that's where the Workday bookends come in. So I want to share my, my morning startup. So I open my calendar, and it's my, the, the, ca the appointment I have with myself is morning startup at 8.15. And here's my checklist. Office startup. To me, that means open the blinds, plug in the computer, turn it on, sign in, get the coffee. I do the day before wrap-up in the morning. That was one of the things that we customized. So the next thing I do is I, I go to my tasks in Microsoft, in Outlook, and I check off the completed tasks. Anything that I didn't complete, I reschedule for when I'm going to do them. And the trick was look at my calendar first before I commit to a date so that I can, I can actually get it done. Then this thing I love is I acknowledge my top three things, my priorities of the day, and the, the tactic you taught me was to go into the calendar at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., and 3 a.m. and put those in as appointments. And the reason 1 a.m., 2 a.m., 3 a.m. is because I never use that part of the calendar anyway. But what that does is it provides for me a visual of where to put those top three things. And if I've completed them, I get to turn them green, right-click, category, green, yellow or red green is it's done yellow is i've started it but there's more work to do and red is i didn't do it important for me in the way that i am competitive with myself as you help me become aware of because when i see green i feel good when i see red i get competitive and i want to do it and also i can go back week by week by week and make sure those important things don't get lost i move them over and i'm, I'm and i'm getting them done so then I go and I complete important emails. I don't start living in my inbox, but I go through to say, what do I need to get to now? Um, this, this next one, there's gold here. Anyone listening, this is gold that I'm about to share with you that Bruce shared with me. Mining your sent items inbox in Outlook or whatever system you're using for follow-up for people who need to get back to you and anybody particularly in sales, in a sales role of any kind, when you do all this work to put out the proposal, to, to, re, to get the appointment scheduled, whatever it is, going through my sent inbox, just like I do my, my inbox, and managing that, hey, you didn't get back to me. There are other tools on that, which I don't know if we'll get into today, on how to get people to respond um, more efficiently and effectively. But mining the sent items has been remarkable. Then I check, um, you know, voicemails, or at least I mark who I need to get to uh, call back today. And then scheduling priority work time for the day, which is still a challenge for me. But looking in my calendar and saying, this is the hour, 90 minutes or longer that I need to spend time doing my work. And then this one I actually captured and, and became a habit back in 2012, preparing for my meetings of the day. 
So I look at the calendar before I go to my inbox or start a proposal or, or get up and walk around and talk to people. I look at my calendar and say, what meetings do I have today? And I do all the preparation I need for that meeting. And I remember vividly how you described this in 2012, in 20, excuse me, 13. It was, this is typical. And this was me running and gunning. I'm getting all this stuff done. I've got meetings and I'll do all this work. I'll, I'll work right up to the clock and it's, oh crap, I need to stop and either drive there or stop and go to the conference room and get to that meeting. And I'm rushing and I'm hurrying and I grab whatever I can, oh, I need this file, what do I, and I get there, and I sit down, and I, I sigh, and I say, oh, I, made, I made it, I made it. Yeah. and then I look up, and I realize, oh, shit, <laughs> I'm unprepared, so preparing for that meeting, then, if it's a listing appointment, do I have the presentation, do I have the listing agreement and duties owed form, if it's a one-to-one with Carol, have I looked at what do we need to talk about today, whatever it is, preparing for that meeting, right then and there everything's sitting on the side of my desk or by my by my bag if i'm leaving to go so i know to grab it that's been transformative for me and only then after all of that bruce only then do i start email correspondence and top priority work well there are several things that you bring out first i think it's important to acknowledge that it's safe to say you were not doing that uh, for most of your career, it's Correct. fairly recent. Um, secondly, is your follow the checklist every day. Yes, I try to. Uh, there was a book that was very profound for me, written a long time ago, entitled The Checklist Manifesto. Uh, author is Artul, A-R-T-U-L, Gawande, G-A-W-A-N-D-E. And it's a fabulous work on how powerful checklists are instead of trying to remember all of these things. It's very efficient to follow your checklist. Most importantly, though, when you were talking about the race to the meeting and you said, oh, shoot, or something like that, to me, that's stress. That's unnecessary stress. And that I want to reiterate one of the major benefits of being organized and doing what it takes to have total preparation to the extent that you can is the calmness. And I would offer almost as a closing comment to you that everybody enjoys doing business with and associating with organized people and vice versa. And if you're in a business where repeat and referral business is the lifeline of your growth, doesn't it make sense to not request that everybody in the organization do these things, but require them in a form of tough love? And that's another problem in the workplace. It's optional. How many people in every organization right now, uh, it's about 9.30, I think, right now, isn't it? Yes, 9.30 a.m. Okay. How many people are already working in your organization, and how many of them started their day with a prioritized plan? I would bet the number is closer to zero than it is 100%. And that's nail on the head. Because if everybody enjoys doing business with an organized person, we may be obstructing the ability to create new business because we're not as organized as we can be, should be, and want to be. 
And all it takes is the commitment to spend the first 15 to 30 minutes of the day to go through a checklist like that. And now you're ready. You're set. It's time to go. <laughs> it's go time. <laughs> I want to share one more thing, and then we'll end on this this theme of impact and what impact um, an organized person has on them for themselves, for their people, for their family, and, and on this world. But an important thing I want to mention is at every step, you've asked me, how does that feel? And you've, you've made me articulate how does that feel? Specifically, we'll talk about the, the, the bookends. Everything I just rattled off, it seems like a long time. It's like, I'm not going to do that. That takes forever. However, with practice, it doesn't start. It, it takes less and less and less time. That's one thing. But I wrote down here on a sticky note because I was a habitual sticky note user before I had created, you helped me create a task list, master task list. But I, I wrote on a sticky note and I have here on my monitor, it says benefit of bookends. Haim, how do you feel after you go through all those things and you do all that work in the morning? And it takes anywhere, like you said, from 15 minutes to a half hour sometimes. But I invest that 15 minutes and a half hour and I feel confident. I feel accomplished. I feel like I'm in control. I feel organized. And most importantly for me is I feel unfrazzled. And part of setting new habits and, and managing your behaviors that you've taught me is also focusing on those positive feelings. There are, what comes right down to it, there are two reasons why we do anything differently. To gain a benefit or to avoid a loss. It's sort of the work I've done over the years with incentive program coaching. And one of the first important things I point out to CEOs and senior management is that money does not motivate people. What people do with money motivates them. Early in my career in that newspaper publisher I mentioned way back in this discussion, <laughs> the classified advertising manager came to me one day and he said, I want to put a contest together for my classified staff, about 20 people, and I want to offer them a $100 bonus each. What do you think? I said, I, I don't think that's a good idea. He asked why, and I said, because you're assuming everybody wants $100. What do you mean? Well, it's what people will do at the 100 that matters. So together we sat down, and, and I said to him, why don't you consider this? Why don't you have everybody enroll in the incentive program? What does that mean? Well, in order to get their bonus, they have to tell you what they're going to do at the $100. And they have to have a picture of it at their desk. So pic picture that. One person had a washing machine, I think, I remember. One person had a, um, and it was going to pay towards it. Uh, one person had um, a MasterCard picture they were going to pay off. Uh, another one had a child's happy face because they're going to use it to buy something, you know, whatever. And he loved that idea, and we did it. And every one of them had a picture. And every one of them got $100. And it just proved to me that it wasn't the $100, is what they were going to do with it. And that's what we're talking about. Less frazzled or not frazzled is the benefit. So 
What's the justification? Where's the motivation to spend that 15 or 30 minutes that you don't have? Well, if you can connect it in your mind that if I do that today, I'm going to have a much calmer, less frazzled day. That's going to affect my work today, my meetings. It might even close a deal or two because everybody will enjoy doing business with someone who's not frazzled. Get those connections. And that's really what you have to look at. Organizing yourself, I'd be the first to admit, is boring and tedious. I love it. Not everybody does. So the swing to the benefits is, is critical for the sustainability of it. And I think that's a takeaway for anybody listening with anything that they want to change in their lives, hopefully for the better. Obviously, nobody wants to change for the worst. But we are up on our time, Bruce, and I feel like we can go for another 90 minutes easy and it'll be good and valuable. Maybe we'll do a part two. But I want to end on this this notion of impact and what an impact you've created in my life in our work that we've been doing together. And the, the, the story that you started with with the impact that the State Farm Insurance broker created with you. Farmers. Farmers, excuse me. Farmers Insurance. I got half of it right. By saying, I'll take a flyer on this, on this guy with this new thing and then referring you. And then the impact that the car dealer owners had on you by the work you did with them and by introducing you to Tech, now Vistage, and the thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of people that you've impacted over your career. So thank you for that. Well, thank you, Haim, and uh, you've been a, a very good student, to say the least, <laughs> and I, I'll, I'll just end with that. Um, my work is, or the success of my work is totally dependent on the application of what we do by the client. Therefore, I decided a long time ago, I'm, I'm very serious about this point, I will never take credit for anybody's success because I won't accept the blame for anybody's failure if I've done my part. So if you or anybody I've worked with gained benefit from it, I was the catalyst, I was the facilitator. You deserve the credit for what you've done. And that's really served me. Uh, I consider you now a, a friend. I have met um, so many people in my career. And the work I've, I live in San Diego still. I'm in Las Vegas a lot, have been now for close to 20 years. I've, um, I've, I've met, I have a lot of acquaintances, but um, probably one or two really special friends I've made here in Las Vegas, and I consider you to be uh, now one of those as well. You've been a great student, and I really appreciate you having um, asked me to do this, and I hope somebody got an idea from it. Let's leave it at that. I hope so, too, and thank you for doing this. Thank you for the, the kind comments. Thank you, Ian. That's it. That's a wrap with Bruce Breyer, everyone. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear from you about what your takeaways were from this episode. Make sure to leave us a comment. Leave us a review. Tune in next time. Thank you for listening. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Takeaways podcast is about sharing and paying it forward. If you like this show, please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. It really goes a long way. And if you really like the show, please share takeaways with a friend. Thank you and tune in next time.